In a matter of days, these streets will be filled with hundreds of thousands of people. Would you join us in praying for people from all around the world, representing 75 countries, speaking multiple different languages? But we want to communicate clearly that they are welcomed here in Richmond, Virginia. And we also want to communicate to them that we are here to help them and offer them hope. Hope in no other name but Jesus. Would you join us as the Christian community links together in offering hope to the world as they visit our city for the UCI World Cycling Championships from September 19th through the 27th? Sign up today in your church to be a Hope Ambassador during the races. Wear the t-shirt, pass out business cards, invite people to visit the exhibit. It's that simple. And let's give the world hope. 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 Good morning, and let me say, we are really, really excited about this, uh, this bike race. You know, I know America, we're not necessarily the biggest followers of that sport. You know, we've heard of the Tour de France and, and some things like that, but, but folks, what is getting ready to hit Richmond is huge. As a matter of fact, the economic impact, the, the, the variety of impacts, both positive and negative, uh, are estimated to be four times the size than if we were to have the Super Bowl here. Uh, this is a huge event that is about to happen. 450,000 people from 75 different nations will be coming through the, the Richmond Airport, coming into our community, and uh, we have a great opportunity here. For those of you that have been around for a while, you know we do this, this thing called Crestos events, and you hear us throw that word out without always explaining it. You're thinking, I've never heard the word Crestos. That's right, it's not, it's not an English word. It's a Greek word, and it means kindness. And it out of Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it says, God's kindness will lead them to repentance. So a number of years ago, we kind of came up with an idea about how can our church be God's kindness out in our community, out in our world. And we've done a variety of events that we call Crestos events, from cleaning, cleaning up schools to buying down gas prices and pumping gas for people to last year we went and cleaned up the state park over in Pocahontas. This year, though, folks, this, this event, could, we couldn't dream up something like this. And we're not doing this by ourselves. There, there's three great opportunities with this event. Number one, we get to partner. We're partnering with about 20 churches in our area, Southeastern Seminary down in North Carolina, and with the SBC of Virginia. So there's, there's a lot of us, and that's what we want to do as a church, right? We want to come alongside and, and work with other churches at some great opportunities. Secondly, it is an opportunity uh, to come alongside the city of Richmond, and help them to do this. They need, matter of fact, they need over 3,000 volunteers uh, to make this happen. I, I thought to myself, well, our church could be a 1,000 of those, couldn't we? <laughs> you and me, brother, we're in this together. <laughs> army of twos, a th army of a thousand. Yeah, that, folks, that's the idea. And, that, and that's what we're encouraging, man, that a thousand of us. Now, you say, well, what will we be doing? Well, let me encourage you to go to the website, our website, theheightsonline.com. You can look up this event. You can read all about it. It's a multi-day event. You can see the variety of places you can go do something. But folks, we'll be volunteering everywhere from the Richmond Airport 
uh, where we'll have a hospitality booth and be handing out hospitality packages uh, to, to having a booth in, in downtown Richmond along the race sites. We'll be, we'll be cleaning up garbage. We'll be helping people. There's a variety of things that we're going to do. But here's the third grade, oper- third, third great, not third grade, third great opportunity. Folks, we are going to be able to openly share the gospel through this. The city of Richmond knows that and they've said, come on. And so we're, as we're handing out these hospitality uh, things, there, there's gospel tracts in there. There's an opportunity to engage people and talk with people. Uh, so this is on all levels a great opportunity for our church. When you serve, when you do this, you get one of these orange shirts. Can you tell this is orange? Can you tell from out there? This is orange. I feel like an orange creamsicle up here. But uh, we'll be wearing these shirts. And folks, imagine this shirt. I mean, even with the, the, all the people that are going to be here, if, if we have thousands of people wearing these, uh, we're going to become very visible in what we're doing. Uh, is going to become very visible. So I hope you'll go look at that and see what that's about and get signed up to be a part with us. Well, hey, listen, I'm going to say something here that's not going to sound like much of a shock. You would expect me, you would expect a pastor to say this, and it it flows real good out of the the song we sang a moment ago. But folks, I I believe in God. Not Not a huge shock, is it, to anybody? No? Okay, good. All right. Y'all are very responsive today. Uh, Yeah, I believe in God. As a matter of fact, I don't just believe in a God. I believe in the God. His name is Yahweh. There's one God that is the creator, the redeemer, and the judge of all mankind. I believe that joining God in somewhat of a mystery is God the Son, His Son, Jesus Christ. Equal, absolutely equal in authority, in existence, in power, in wisdom. And then to make it even a little bit more of a ministry, a mystery, there is the third member of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. Also absolutely equal in authority, existence, power, and wisdom. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of mankind and that when any individual, whoever they are, wherever they've been, whatever they've done, when they turn from their own sin, when they turn from their faith in other things, including religion, and they turn and place their faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for them on the cross, they can be saved. They they can be forgiven of their sins, rescued from sin, death, and hell, and restored into a right relationship with God. I believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the third day after dying on that cross. I believe that Jesus Christ will return to this earth and set up his kingdom. I believe that all people will live forever in either heaven or hell. And I believe these things, folks, because I believe this book is the holy authoritative word of God. Now, can I get an amen from that? We believe that, right? Yeah, man, we believe. And, and we get excited about our beliefs. We, we, we like singing about it. We like hearing it proclaimed. And the louder, the, the stronger, the clearer, the, be- the better. We believe. Now that we're kind of all thinking about what we believe, let's play a little game of Jeopardy. Y'all familiar with Jeopardy, right? Comes on each night. That's usually when I take my first nap in the evening. Uh, we, we watch Jeopardy. Now, you know how Jeopardy works. You get the answer. And then you've got, to, you've got to phrase the question. So here's the answer. No difference. What would that be? What would that be? Ah! Ah! There we go. I love the people that frust- get all frustrated and battle the little clicker while the guy next to him is just doing this. Yeah. Alex, what would be the difference between us and Satan? Because we say we have beliefs. That's right. Did you catch what I just said? There's no difference between us and Satan. 
simply because we say that we believe something. Now, I don't know about you, but that, that rattles me a little bit. What is that about? Where does that idea come from? Well, let's find out. Would you turn in the Bible with me uh, this morning to James chapter 2? James 2, and I'm going to begin in verse uh, 14. Now, if you were here last week, uh, or if you've been here any this summer, we have uh, been working our way through James. We're doing a series in that called Faith in Gear, and last week we ended in chapter 1. So you might be wondering why we're jumping to verse 14. What happened to the first 13 verses? Well, if you remember a couple of weeks ago when we were studying James 1, 9 through 11, we went over and grabbed 2, 1 through 13 and made that a part of our study that day because it kind of went together. So we're not skipping the first 13 verses. We've already looked at them. So today, uh, as we continue, we are picking up in verse 14 of James 2. Let me begin reading that. It says, Dear brothers and sisters, what's the use of saying you have faith if you don't prove it by your actions? That kind of faith can't save anyone. Suppose you see a brother or sister who needs food or clothing and you say, well, uh, goodbye and God bless you. Stay, stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, it isn't enough just to have faith. Faith that doesn't show itself by good deeds is no faith at all. It's dead. It's useless. Now, someone may argue, well, some people have faith, but others have good deeds. I say, I can't see your faith if you don't have good deeds, but I will show you my faith through my good deeds. Do you still think it's enough just to believe that there is one God? Well, even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. Fool, when will you ever learn that faith that does not result in good deeds is useless? Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was declared right with God because of what he did when he, when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, he was trusting God so much that he was willing to do whatever God told him to do. His faith was made complete by what he did, by his actions. And so it happened just as the scriptures say. Abraham believed God... So God declared him to be righteous. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are made right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Rahab the prostitute is another example of this. She was made right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without a spirit, so also faith is dead without good deeds. Now, the passage I just read, folks, is, is the centerpiece of, of the entire book. It's not a big book, not a long book, but it is the center of this book. Chapter 2, verse 14 is kind of the apex of James' message. Everything before 2.14 is leading up to it. Everything after 2.14 is pointing back to it. And, of course, when you look there at 2.14, you see these two questions that have absolutely an implied answer. And that is this, real faith produces real results. Real faith produces good works. Real faith makes a real difference. And, and if you look in your life and you say, I've got faith, but you, you don't see results, you don't see good works, you don't see a difference, that faith's not real. As a matter of fact, what James is going to say, it's, it's dead, it's useless. Now, another way of looking, not, not that we need to look another way at the questions in 2.14, they're pretty straightforward, but maybe another way we could phrase that would be to ask the question this way. Is it enough 
to believe in Jesus Christ. If I say, I believe in Jesus, does that in fact save me? Does that in fact forgive my sins? Does that in fact secure me entrance into heaven? And folks, we would answer that question by saying, yes. We absolutely would say yes to that. But now, we got to somehow figure out how that's true. But then we've got James coming along. And I think what James is reacting to, this is now 30 years after Jesus has ascended. So the church has been growing. The beliefs have been getting out there for, for three decades now. And I think what James just cannot fathom is that somebody is reducing following Christ. I, that's what we are. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, what James can't fathom is that somebody is taking that idea and boiling it down to, oh, I believe. Yeah, I believe, I believe that Jesus is God. I, I was baptized or I went through confirmation. So, you know, I've, I've got this profession of faith. I've got some kind of religious ritual that, that backs that up. D does that by itself, if that's all there is, am I a genuine follower of Jesus Christ? Now, here again, I, part of me says, well, absolutely. And then I come to James and I say, well, gosh, the way he's asking that, no, no, I guess that wouldn't be just it. Now, let's kind of backtrack here and see why we say, I don't think that's a new thought to us in here, but, but let's see why we would say we are saved by faith alone. A couple of passages here. Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified, that means made right with God, by faith apart from the works of law. We're saved by faith, has nothing to do with our works. Okay, Romans 4.3, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him, it was credited to him, it was put in his account. Righteousness. Righteousness, by the way, is a word that's synonymous with justified. Again, both meaning in right standing with God. How did it come? By believing. Look at the next verse. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, folks, is a kind of a central passage to this concept, this idea of being saved by faith alone. This passage has all of the words, has all of the ideas included in it. For by grace, that means unmerited, undeserved favor. Whatever is about to happen between me and God did not initiate with me. It, it, it's not initiating with what I believe. It's not initiating with my character. It's not in, initiated by some good work I do. What God is about to do is not in response to me. It's not because, oh, well, Randy did this, so now I owe him. Now I'm obligated to him. No, this, this entire process is driven by grace, God's kindness, God's undeserved favor. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. What's not my own doing? Faith. Even the faith we show when God didn't come from. Faith is not my work obligating God to save me. The faith I show is not my own doing. It's a gift of God. The faith that saves us is a gift from him. Why? Because he's gracious. Not as a result of works. Why is this whole work thing so big deal? So that we don't boast. We actually would do that. We'd actually say, matter of fact, we would do that. We do this. God, you owe me. 
I've prayed. I've gone to church. I did a good thing. I, I went over here. I said this. I obeyed you. God, I did my part, so now you're obligated to do yours. What Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is removing, it is eradicating, it is placing a bomb in the middle of this whole idea that we're in some kind of give and take relationship with God. That we add something to the equation here. No, it's all by grace. One more, Titus 3, 5. He saved us. That's God, obviously. God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And folks, these verses are extremely, is it clear? Not our works, saved by faith alone. Two ideas, but they're two sides of the same coin. They go absolutely together. Okay, it's not faith plus something. It's not something Jesus did on the cross and then I come and add to it. Like, like Jesus got us 95% there and then we just come and polish it up and give him all the glory for after all it was mostly his work, right? No, it, it's, it's, not, it's not that Jesus left it short and we come complete it. It is by faith alone that we are saved. And this is partly what I think Jesus is setting up for when he's on the cross and his final words are, it is finished. It's complete. Why was I sent into this world? To seek and to save the lost. Everything now necessary to save the lost. Everything necessary for Randy's sins to be forgiven. Everything necessary to restore him to a right relationship with God. Everything necessary for him to go to heaven is finished. It's complete. There's nothing else that needs to be added here. Now we believe that, right? We understand that, yes? Ah, a little bit of response there would be awesome. Yeah, this is pretty central to what we believe. Okay, but then we now have James come along. And, and, and he has, through this, really been focusing on what we do. But then now we come to chapter 2, 14 through 26. And, man, you look at verse 24 there. My gosh, that does not verse 24 say just the opposite of what we just said? Of what all these other verses say? Is, is not James contradicting? You know, some great people have really struggled with what James is doing here. As a matter of fact, I think of somebody like Martin Luther, the great reformer. You know what he said about James? He said it's a book of straw and it doesn't belong in the Bible. That's a pretty strong statement about it from a great theologian, a great church leader about a book of the Bible. Of course, you know what helps you understand that? Is the context of his life. See, Martin Luther had spent most of his life trying to work his way into heaven. Trying to cover all the religious bases, get all the religious checkoffs, And he's trying to work his way to heaven. And it left him insecure. It left him afraid of God and with no security and when faith came alive to him, as he studied actually the book of Romans, when faith came alive to him, that became so central to everything he was about. He wasn't even trying to. ended up leading a whole reformation that led to the Protestant church. But see, in that, he comes across a book like James's. No, man, that is, that is just wrong. It's just a contradiction. And then there's been others. Well, no, it's not a, it's not a contradiction. It, it, it's, it's not wrong. It's, it's a book of the Bible. You know what James did is he just, he just went too far. He's making an important point, but he just pressed home the point too far. Now, folks, I actually am under the belief that James is not contradicting what we just read, that he didn't go too far. It's, it's understood in context. And by the way, I don't think I'm smarter than Martin Luther or, or others who have grappled with this book. I've had a lot of help in trying to understand it myself. But I, I think as you come to this book, it's, it's all context. 
Folks, we don't lift chapter 2, verse 24 out by itself and, and then build a doctrine. Nothing in Christianity is built on one verse by itself pulled out. Everything's understand in context. We understand the verse by understanding the paragraph. We understand the paragraph by understanding the chapter. We understand the chapter by understanding the book. We understand the book by understanding the whole New Testament, the whole Bible. It's always a context. You know, a lot of Sundays, I'm, I'm just running verses by y'all up here, aren't I? And, and, and it's always got, you know, where, where it is. You know, I always encourage you. I don't always say this, but I encourage you, write that down. And it is your job to not trust me. Did you know that? I do not ask you to trust me. I do not ask you to just, hey, take what I'm saying and go with it. Actually, what the scripture says is you're to test what I'm saying. You're to go home and say, hey, he used this verse this way. Let me go look that verse up and see in context, did he appropriately use that verse or did he misuse it? Did he manipulate it? Is he trying to say something that the, that the whole of that passage didn't say? So we've got to understand context. Well, in context, folks, just like Martin Luther maybe went a little far in what he said, we might say, well, what was the context of James? James is dealing with an issue. I've already kind of referred to it here. Where, where just 30 years after Jesus has ascended, there is this growing body in the church of people who pretty much the total definition of their following Jesus Christ is coming down to saying, I believe. I, I, I believe Jesus is God. I, I, I had this religious experience. I went through this religious ritual. And James is saying, no, no. No, that, that cannot be the, the total definition of your faith. That cannot be the entirety of what it means to follow Christ. If that's all you've got, you've been following Christ two weeks, two years, 27 years, 57 years, and all you're really holding on to is, well, I, I, I believe back there I went to this event and I did that. And that's all you... Paul says no. I mean, James says no. Man, faith can be seen. Faith has results. And that's pretty much it. And that's pretty much the point that he's making. What does that, but the way he says it, does that put him in contradiction with Paul? No, here's how I understand James and Paul. And again, I've had help seeing it this way. Imagine I'm the, imagine I'm the cross for a second, okay? I'm, obviously, I'm a big orange cross, okay? Imagine I'm the cross, okay? Now, now imagine I'm Paul. Where am I standing? Right, right next, remember the cross? Okay, so now I'm Paul. My back's against the cross, a lot of those verses we just read, a lot of Paul's writing, he is addressing pre-cross. He is teaching about how a person out there that is not a child of God, that is not saved, how they approach the cross, how they come into a relationship with God. That's really the focus of a lot of what he's teaching. And the way that you and I come to the cross, the way that you and I come to God, the way that you and I enter a relationship with God is by faith alone. So understand, the context of Paul is pre-cross, pre-relationship with God. Now, where's James? Watch this. Remember the cross? Here's Paul. Here's James. James is in the exact same place Paul is. They're right there, anchored in the cross. The difference is, Paul is addressing post-cross. Okay, you've come to God by faith alone, but now let's see where you're going in life. And a, a phrase that helped me understand this a lot, that's been used a lot, is, is Paul is saying we are saved by faith alone. James is standing here saying, and faith that saves is never alone. 
Do you get that? You are saved. There's no work. There's no, you know, I did this, your character. Your, there's nothing. By faith alone, you come to salvation. By faith alone, you come into a relationship with God. And now James is addressing you in that relationship with God, saying, if you had a saving faith, it has results. It has works. It, it makes a difference. And so they're speaking two different directions. They're saying the exact same thing. They're just speaking in two different directions about that same thing. As a matter of fact, folks, Paul also says the exact same thing. I just referred you a second ago to Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Remember? By grace, not of works, by faith alone. Do you know what verse 10 says right after that? Look at this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. Paul and James aren't saying anything different. Okay, one, they have maybe two different focuses of where they're going with this, but they're saying the exact same thing. Folks, when we've been saved, it's to make a difference in our lives. We are a new people. Here's a question. I'm going to ask it again throughout the morning. Is there a difference in me between when I didn't believe in Jesus Christ and now that I say I believe in Jesus Christ? Paul's saying, or excuse me, James is saying, what's the difference? Now, to help us to work through this, James then... I mean, basically what I've just done is explain 2.14. And so now the rest of the passage is just kind of illustrating and explaining the implied answer of 2.14. So as we get to verse 15, okay, here comes this person. And he says, hey, I believe in God. I love God. Man, who doesn't believe in God? Love God. And then they walk into the body of Christ. They walk into the church and they see another believer. Notice it says that this person sees a brother. He's a brother or a sister. This is in the body of Christ that has a need. This passage is not about poverty out in the community or seeing a need in somebody out in the community. Plenty of passages address our responsibility to what's going on out in the community. But this isn't about out in the community. This is about right here in the family. And here's somebody who sees somebody in need. And they say, oh man, gosh, sorry for you. Hey, praying for you. See ya. You know, they kind of give that praying for you, you know, that way we use praying for you when it's kind of an awkward moment and we just want to get out of it without really doing anything. But just something in us says we should do something. So what is it? I'm praying for you. And then we get out. And, and so James says, hey, man, there's no way that's okay. Now, listen, you said you believe in God. I absolutely do. Well, if you believe in God, you would love him with all my heart. Okay, well, then you know that the scripture teaches that if you love God, then you love his people. Oh, well, yeah, I do. Because you know what? We define love as just a warm, precious feeling down deep in my belly. There it is. Love for God, love for his people. And no. Man, it's not a warm feeling down deep in your belly. Loving God, loving his people means when you see need, you meet it. Isn't that what Jesus said? Remember he told the, the, the story about the sermon, I mean, the, the Good Samaritan? He gave us that, that law, love your neighbor. Who's my neighbor? Anybody you see in need. And James would say, my gosh, if, if Jesus told us to, to meet any need we see, would that not begin first and foremost with your own brother and sister in Jesus Christ? I love the way James calls that. It was chapter 2, verse 8. Remember, we already studied the first three verses. He calls that the royal law of love. James is the only one I know who adds that adjective. <laughs> the royal, hey, you want to know, the way we're to relate, you want to know the king and the queen of that command? Love your neighbor. Love each other. It's a love that Jesus defined as meeting a need. And then Jesus went on to tell us about sheep and goats. You remember that story? 
He separates the sheep and goats. This is going, who's going to heaven and hell. And the goats in that story, it's, it, they're all religious people. They're all people who can say, oh, I believe right. They're all people who can say, I, I jumped through this religious hoop and I did that religious ritual. And, and Jesus says, man, you're not, a, you're not a follower of mine. Man, I was hungry. I was thirsty. You didn't do anything to help me. And of course, they said what you and I said, what are you talking about? Man, I, I would have absolutely done that for you. I don't remember seeing you. Hey, when you didn't do it for that brother and sister, when you didn't do it for the least of these right here in the family, you rejected me. See, folks, it seems that Jesus probably is not all up into our religious experience and our profession of faith if that doesn't actually roll out and become love and concern and care for others. Okay, so uh, James is saying here, listen, if you've got a faith where you say, I believe and I love, but that doesn't actually ever land in serving and blessing and helping others, that faith's empty. That faith's meaningless, worthless. It's dead. He's not saying your faith's not good enough. He's not saying your faith didn't save you. He's saying that's not faith. You may be throwing that word out there, but it's not what we're talking about. And so then he goes to the second illustration, verse 19. And here comes somebody. It almost sounds like this guy's heard James, knows what he's saying. And man, I'm a little bit light on good deeds. I'm going to get blasted here. And so he tries to beat James to the punch and says, okay, I don't have a whole lot of good deeds, but let me tell you what I do have. I am the Duke of Doctrine. Since you're all up into royalty, James. I know what I believe. As a matter of fact, I teach it. I'm a Sunday school teacher here. I'm a pastor here. People learn from me <laughs> what to believe. I got belief down. And to this, James looks at him and says, Woohoo! Guess what? That would make you actually no different at all from Satan. I bet the guy went, duh, that's a curveball, isn't it? You know what, that, James 2.19 is the only place I think I know of in Scripture that makes a point like that. It's super simple, super logical. I just think it's a point we probably never actually did the math on. But stop and think about it, folks. Satan knows that Jesus is God, right? Satan knows who God is. Satan knows his name. Satan knows who Jesus is. Satan knows that Jesus rose again on the third day. Satan knows that Jesus is coming back. And Satan knows that this is the word of God. Satan knows all of these things. But did that belief change anything? Did that belief lead to love and obedience? Because love and obedience are supposed to follow faith. Love and obedience are supposed to follow the knowledge. And so it appears here that what James is saying is, hey, listen, if, if you're going to define faith as just simply, I, 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 yeah, I believe that. I, I, I adhere to that, that set of things you say I'm supposed to believe. Listen, if that's how you're defining faith, then you could say that Satan has faith. To which you and I would then respond, that's crazy. And James would go, I know, Right? Yeah, it's absolutely crazy to say that Satan has faith. Just as crazy as it is for you and I to have nothing going on in our lives that looks like we're following Christ other than back there somewhere, I said I believe something. That's crazy. That's not faith. That's empty. That's dead. That's, that's not what we're talking about here. And then James finishes the whole thing off with, 
going to a biblical illustration. And I kind of wonder here, now is James actually thinking of Paul? By the way, again, no conflict between James and Paul. You can read chapters like Acts 15, Acts 21. You see James and Paul in relationship with each other. You see Paul submitting to James as, as the leader of the, of the church. And there's nowhere in there in their dialogue and in their relationship that you would pick up that they're contradicting each other or that there's a disagreement. None of that. And they got, they got a good relationship. But I wonder as he writes this, because he knows how Paul has developed this argument. He says, he all the time is taking people. Let's look at Abraham. Abraham was made right with God by believing. And so, and so he goes to these Old Testament examples and he picks Abraham and Rahab. How's this for two completely opposite people? Okay, Abraham, a Jewish man... Uh, the, the receiver of God's promises, a, a man of, of, of power and great respect, and Rahab, not a Jewish man, a Gentile prostitute, a, a woman of ill repute. Power and respect would never, ever be connected with her name. What the beauty of the gospel, folks, because both stand right before God. Both are children of God, not by how good or bad they did it, but by the grace of God. Now, Paul, James says, now let's look at that. Paul's already told you, he didn't say that there, but I can almost see him kind of filling it in. Paul's already taught you that they were made right with God by what they believed. And Paul was absolutely right in pointing you that direction. But I want to point out that what they did because of that belief was lock and step. You know, chronologically, you would say belief comes first. We become a child of God first. We believe, we're forgiven, we become a child of God. That comes first. The good works follow. What, what James is trying to do is to get us to see while one might become before the other, let me tell you something, they are so connected you can't separate them. They are so connected. There's no concept of a faith that is not followed by works, that is not followed by a changed life, that is not followed by results. They go hand in hand. So, so Paul pointed you toward what saved them. I'm pointing you toward the real faith that saved them, and it always had works connected with it. They go, they go hand in hand together. Now, you look at that and say, okay, so James, what's your point you know, am I just supposed to sit here and feel bad about my faith, beat my faith up? I don't know, has my, has my faith made enough changes? Ha, has my faith done enough good works? Folks, the goal here is not for us to live in constant insecurity about whether we've got enough faith or the right kind of faith. That, that, that's not the goal here. But the goal is to measure the faith. The goal is to be certain. That's a That's a blessing. That's a blessing to be able to say, hey, here's how you measure faith to see. Because we are talking about like forever and ever, right? We're talking about eternity and whether it's spent in heaven or hell. You know, periodically you'd want to, hey, I want to know for sure that the faith I've expressed. Have you ever wondered, is my faith real? Have you ever wondered, do I have a, a saving faith? I think for most of us that goes through our mind every now and then. So James says, hey, listen, let's, let's measure your faith. If it's real, it's measurable. Let me say that again. If it's real, it's measurable. And so we can kind of measure this. Imagine you're sitting there having a cup of coffee with James and you say, hey, James, I've got faith. Well, we can take just the first two chapters of James and measure. We can take the whole book of James. I mean, the whole book of James is some very practical ways to measure faith. 
Now, it's not an exhaustive list, but boy, it's a good working list. And so I've said, hey, James, I've got faith. And James says, okay, well, let, let, let's measure it. Let's think about that a little bit. Has your faith shaped the way you look at hard times? Has your faith shaped those moments when you're not even sure God knows you exist? And you're not sure he exists. Does your faith shape that moment? Has your faith led you to a a place where you can actually look at hard times and count them a joy? Because those are an opportunity to grow closer to God. Has your faith done that? How has your faith shaped the way you deal with sin and temptation? Has it left you back where it used to be before you believed? Where, hey, if I did something wrong, it's somebody else's fault. And boy, aren't we a culture of that today. We're an entire, I'm not guilty of anything. It's somebody else. It's what they did to me. Man, it's right there in Scripture. Right there in James 1.13. Not me. It's Satan. It's them. Or as James said, I'm blaming you, God, for my sin. Has faith shaped the way you understand your sin and temptation and the way you fight that? Has faith... I mean, talk about how practical is this, folks. Has, Has your faith slowed this down and speeded these up? Has your faith led you to getting control of that anger? Because, boy, what we find in James is your anger is a big deal to God. That's a, that's a big deal. Has your faith brought some self-control to that? Hey, has your, has your faith, has your faith led you to, to not only want to hear this book and, and read this book and study this book, but has, le- has it led you to want to do it? Man, I want to do this. Man, I want to get this. I want this change in me. I want to look like this. I want to have said that. Does it lead? Do you see that passion growing in your life? Hey, has your faith led you to love people? Boy, think about what we've seen now in two chapters. A faith that just demolishes in what is me, what is in everybody. It demolishes prejudice. It demolishes discrimination. It doesn't leave me walking around not caring about what people are going through and what they're experiencing. Has your faith changed the way you see people that you, you're kind of starting to see them like maybe God does? Hey, ha- has your faith led you to get control of this and, and the lies and, and the cursing and the gossip that flows from it? I don't, I don't know. I just have a feeling that if I was sitting there with James and he was helping me measure my faith, I'd be like... I don't even want to read chapter 3 now. <laughs> I'm like batting zero. You know, I mean, golly, where does this leave me? I, am I, again, am I supposed to be anxious now? Gosh, it sounds like you have to be perfect. Is that what James is saying? When you're perfect, then you know your faith is real. No. That's not what James is saying. But you know what he is saying? If your faith is real, you want to be perfect. Is James saying, boy, I look back over these last seven days and I I didn't always do what God would have done there. I didn't always say what God would have said there. So does that that mean I'm not really saved? Does that mean my faith is not real? No. But if your faith is real, boy, you sure want to do what God would do there. Man, you sure want to say what God would have said there. Let Let me ask the question I asked a moment ago. So I've got this point that I believed. For me, it was a long time ago, May 12th, 1982. So I had this moment, I had this experience. I wasn't a believer, and then I said, no, I, I'm now a believer. Okay, well, 
what's the difference from before May 12, 1982 to after May 12th? What's, what's the date? What's the time period? You don't have to know. You don't have to know the exact date. What's the time period for you? When roughly was that? What, what was going on before? What's changed since? Because surely we believe. I mean, how can we not believe that a faith that is strong enough to save us, isn't it strong enough to change us? If we didn't need to be changed, then what is it you think you believed in? Let's pray. Father, I, I would pray for myself. I would pray for each of us here in the room. Maybe those of us watching online right now. I want to pray for them, Lord. I want to pray for us discernment. Right now, right here in this very moment. Maybe this afternoon. Maybe this whole week. Maybe we're going to spend this whole week just reading through the, the, the letter of James over and over. Just letting our faith be measured. God, give us discernment to measure what it is I'm calling faith and what that faith has resulted in in my life. Lord, give me the, the discernment to see, to understand. Give me the courage to really do this. Lord, give me the wisdom to respond to what I see. I, I, I hope for some, for many of us, Lord, it's, it's going to be an opportunity to celebrate and praise you for what you've done and, and how you've changed us and the work that is coming forth because of you and the Holy Spirit living in us. And, and we want to praise you for that. Lord, maybe for some it's going to be a time of repentance. A, a time of recommitment. Maybe for some of us it's going to be realizing we really never had a real faith. We've never come to faith. God, guide us what each one of us, the step we need to take. And God, I thank you that in that exercise of measuring our faith, I thank you that you're so gracious. You're so kind, you're so patient to work with us through that. God, I want your kindness. I want your patience with me to have a result. I want it to produce something in me that's not the same as when I didn't even believe in you. I ask for your help in this, Lord. It's in Jesus' name I ask this. Amen.